A very, very warm welcome. I'm Tricia Hillis and I'm the Canon Pastor here at St. Paul's. And it's, tonight is my very, very great pleasure to be able to welcome you to the cathedral and to this St. Paul's adult learning event. I'm going to introduce our speakers in a moment, but first, for those of you who've not been to one of our events before, let me just explain a little of how the evening will unfold. Shortly, our speakers will reflect in turn on their individual experience of being black in a white majority church. After this, the panelists will have a short conversation to start to explore some of the points raised. And then you will have a chance to join in the conversation by putting questions to our speakers. And we really do hope that you'll get involved through offering those questions. So you have two options. One is to write your question on the back of your program at any point and to hold it up to be collected. And we'll collect questions until around about 7.35. To help us, please could you keep them brief and especially keep them legible. We're also taking questions via Twitter, and you can use the hashtag we need to talk about race. If you'd like to send us your question via your mobile, just send in your question, type it in, include hashtag we need to talk about race, and our eager elves will find it. Your questions will then be sent up to me here at the laptop, and I'll do my very best to make sure we cover as many as we possibly can. The evening will end at 8 o'clock. There's a bookstall here where you can buy some of the speakers' books, and I'm told at a wonderful discount. As you leave, we'll be holding a retiring collection for Power the Fight, a charity which has been founded by Ben Lindsay, which exists to empower communities to end knife crime. If you'd like to donate, that would be most welcome, and you can put cash in the baskets held by our stewards as you leave. And indeed, you can visit a table over here to find out a little more about the work of the charity. All of those preliminaries done, it's now my great pleasure to introduce each of our speakers. Ben Lindsay is pastor at Emmanuel Church London, and as you've heard, he's the founder and CEO of Power the Fight, the charity working to end youth violence and knife crime. One of the evening standards, Progress 1000 London's Most Influential People for 2018, Ben has spent more than 17 years working with high-risk young people, in the field of gangs and serious youth violence. His recently published book, We Need to Talk About Race, Understanding the Black Experience in White Majority Churches, is the reason we're here, and it was described by the Archbishop of Canterbury as a must-read for the UK church. Governor B is the first rapper in UK history to top the Christian and gospel charts and was a MOBO award winner before the age of 20. 
He aims to use his music to inform, inspire, and equip young people to live out their God-given purpose on earth and to reach their full potential. And in a world where some music promotes drugs, violence, sex, and misogyny, he hopes to be a beacon of light. The Reverend Rosemary Mallet is vicar of St. John's Church in, in Brixton and lead public policy advisor for the Diocese of Southwark. Born in Barbados, she's traveled many routes to arrive here in London and working as she does in an urban parish. She's worked as a senior medical sociologist and an ethno-cultural mental health research scientist and is now deeply engaged in church and community development, locally and nationally, dealing with issues of justice and equality for women and minority ethnic people in church and beyond. Chinny MacDonald is media content and PR lead at Christian Aid. Prior to this, she was director of comms and membership for the Evangelical Alliance, and then Head of Christian Influence and Engagement at World Vision. She read Theology and Religious Studies at Cambridge University before training to be a newspaper journalist. She's a regular contributor to BBC religion and ethics programs. You can tell already that we are in for a feast. We're really grateful to all of our speakers for joining us. Would you please join with me in welcoming them? Good evening. Hey. <laughs> it's great to see so many people here. I just want to thank St. Paul's for this incredible opportunity to just talk about race and the UK church. I'd like to thank our panel members uh, just for sharing their knowledge. It's going to be a great evening. Um, the question, do we really need to talk about race? Well, in my experience, what I've found is that the conversation around racism is happening outside of the church. It's happening um, whether it's in a sports context, whether it's in media. And I just felt actually, as I was beginning to think about this stuff and God was laying a lot of uh, content in my heart, that there was a conversation which was not happening in the church. Do we really need to talk about race? I think we can be fooled into thinking that we live in a post racial society, we can go back to 1997 and the Blair years and the giddy excitement of multiculturalism, or we can look at the Obama years, 2008, and we can almost be fooled into thinking that there is no racism because we've got a black president. But the truth is, when we look at 2015, 2016, the leave or remain vote, since then, there's been 80% rise in hate crime. We only have to go back a month ago when England played Bulgaria, and we saw a lot of 
the English black players being racially abused. So we know that racism is a, is a big issue. I suppose there's two quotes which summarize why I wrote this book. The first is from an unknown uh, author, and it says this. Accessibility is being able to get in the building. Diversity is getting invited to the table. Inclusion is having a voice at the table. Belonging is having your voice heard at the table. My experience of growing up in a white majority church, being saved in a white majority church and a white majority movement, and then being one of the leaders of a white majority church in Southeast London, but all these things which I mentioned, diversity, inclusion, integration, was something which was very complicated. The second quote is from the Bible, 1 Corinthians 12, 25, 26, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. I suppose my experience in a church context too often was that when issues arose with black people, not the whole body came together to say they're suffering. There was no real understanding. And that grieved me, concerned me, led me to lament and ask God why. What I want to do now is just read a little bit of my introduction. For those who haven't got the book, hopefully it should whet your appetites and not turn you off. So I just want to read a little bit of the introduction because this really will give you an idea of my heart. More importantly, I think it's more God's heart behind this. So, I carried this for years. This is the title of this chapter, or the introduction. The most difficult thing to get people to accept is the obvious. Dick Gregory, African-American comedian and civil rights activist. Being black in a white majority church can be a bit like the first day of a new school on repeat. Your natural insecurities come to the surface. Will I be included? Will I be noticed? How do I connect with the popular people? How do I fit in? Will my contributions be valued? Conversations feel like hard work and at times even painful without the ease of shared histories and friendship. As a minority, you experience verbal and nonverbal slights and indignities on a regular basis that, although brief and commonplace, can lead to a deep feeling of isolation and exclusion. I was at a Christian conference a few years ago when a white church leader commented on my high-top Afro hairstyle, clearly a long time ago, asking, is that a basketball thing? Perhaps he was genuinely curious, 
but the highlighting of my difference and the implied assumptions surrounding the question that all black men are into basketball, even though I don't play basketball, made me feel uncomfortable. Was I being oversensitive, or was his comment racist? This kind of encounter, known in psychology circles as a racial microaggression, is a constant occurrence in the life of a black person. Comments like these often come from well-intentioned white people, but without space to examine our racial biases and discuss misconceptions and misunderstandings, you can see how easily hostility can arise. Often in church, this hostility is hidden from view, but that doesn't mean it isn't there. Many people of color struggle to feel integrated and included in white majority churches. Whether it's the lack of representation in church senior leadership structures or the feeling of exclusion from day-to-day -day church life, isolation is a theme I hear painfully frequently. A black woman who attended the church I pastor in southeast London said this, too often minority groups have shied away from expressing the reality of their experiences because they do not want to come across as victims. They do not want to be defined by those experiences and they tire of defending themselves to majority groups who accuse them of self-indulgent navel-gazing and question whether their views, experiences or struggles are real. With experiences like these, it is unsurprising that statistics show the fastest growing denominations in the UK are black African churches. The Pentecostal movement has seen an 11% increase in membership between 2012 and 2017, while overseas national churches such as Chinese, Polish, and Romanian churches are also growing at a phenomenal rate. Are ethnic minorities tired of trying to integrate into the multi-ethnic church the Bible describes when this seemingly appears to not be a reality? Has diversity become just a value on a church website without any consideration for how the ethnic minority cultures are included within church life? At the heart of Jesus' teaching is a message of equality and reconciliation. Though there have been moments when the church has been at the forefront of social progress, the role of Christians in the abolition movement, for example, the church must also confront its own complicity in the building of racial structures that still exist today. The Eurocentric presentation of Christianity, which betrays its Middle Eastern or African origins, and the use of scripture to justify brutal historic acts have created barriers to the faith for some black people in the present day. These are some of the reasons why I am committed to the idea of racial inclusion and unity in the church and in wider society. This is the reason I look to Jesus 
who smashed the dividing wall of hostility so humankind can be reconciled to God and one another. This is why I agree with what Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said. I definitely think the Christian church should be integrated and any church that stands against integration and that has a segregated body is standing against the spirit and the teachings of Jesus Christ and it fails to be a true witness. Talking about race isn't easy. Some of the barriers I have faced in talking to white people about race are defensiveness and dismissiveness. Many of the white people I talk to are not actively racist. They do, however, often struggle to acknowledge the privileges that come with their whiteness or perhaps have simply never considered them. Privileges such as not worrying about what to wear because you're not going to be racially profiled by the police or be a victim of mistaken identity. Privileges like not seeing your physical presence as a constant threat to women who automatically cross the road or hold tight to their handbags on approach. Privileges like not having to overcompensate when finding positive images of your race in books, films, and art for your children because of the lack of representation in mainstream media. Privileges like being able to discover your family history and legacy with ease. Privileges like seeing people who look like you in the highest employment and leadership positions. I could go on. As Rene Edo Lodge puts it, white privilege is an absence of the consequences of racism, an absence of structural discrimination, an absence of your race being viewed as a problem first and foremost, an absence of less likely to succeed because of my race. It is an absence of funny looks directed at you because you are believed to be in the wrong place an absence of cultural expectations, an absence of violence enacted on your ancestors because of the color of their skin, an absence of a lifetime of subtle marginalization and othering, exclusion from the narrative of being human. In my grappling with Christianity, for UK church and racism, I've experienced a range of emotions, but I do remain hopeful. I'm reminded of the words of black theologian and pioneer of Christianity, Augustine of Hippo. Hope has two beautiful daughters. Their names are anger and courage. Anger that things are the way they are, and courage to see that they do not remain as they are. Christians should be both angry about racial discrimination, particularly in the UK church, and courageous in wanting to change the situation. I am hopeful that the UK church can truly represent the glorious picture painted in Revelation 7-9, where every nation, 
from all tribes and peoples and languages will worship Jesus. For this to happen, the UK church will need to examine itself. It will need to move into the river of the black experience. We need to open the discussion and start talking about the black experience within a church context. The church has been silent for too long on the issue of racism. We need to talk about race. Thank you. Good evening, everyone. Are we good? Cool, man. Thanks very much to, to Ben for having me speak. It's a pleasure. Um, I'm a rapper. My rap name is Governor B. Um, and St. Paul's Cathedral is an incredible venue and one that I've dreamed about playing some music at for quite some time. But without being too judgmental, um, for the most part, you don't look like the type of audience whose genre of choice is rap. Um, so I thought of a little backup plan. I'm going to sing a little bit of Amazing Grace, right? And I would love for you to join in and sing with me. Now, this is either going to be one of the best moments of my life <laughs> or one of the most awkward. The choice is yours. So I'm going to start singing and hopefully uh, you'll join in. So here we go. Amazing. Give yourselves a round of applause. Fantastic, fantastic. Now, uh, a few months ago, I visited uh, my motherland, which is Ghana, the country where my parents are from. Um, and I visited there for some birthday celebrations. It was my birthday. I took a few of my friends and family. And on that trip, we visited a place called Elmina, which is a slave castle. Now, uh, as you can imagine, that trip was quite eye-opening and heartbreaking for me, uh, having seen the conditions and the torture that some of my ancestors went through. Um, one of the things that I found out while visiting that slave castle was that one of the main uh, slave ship owners and one of the people that profited from the slave trade in Ghana was a guy called John Newton. Now, who is John Newton? John Newton is or was an Anglican clergyman and also the writer of the song that we just sung, Amazing Grace. Now, I've grown up going to church and I've sung Amazing Grace hundreds of times. Through my work as a rapper, I've toured worldwide and been invited to many churches in addition to attending my own. I've sat through hundreds of sermons on grace, forgiveness, 
evil, injustice, and in my personal experience, never once has the history of John Newton been spoken about. I find that a bit weird, because the Bible doesn't do that. The Bible doesn't conveniently forget or fail to mention one's history. Apostle Paul did great things, but the Bible made sure we knew he was an enemy of the church at one point. David did incredible things, but the Bible made sure we knew he was a murderer at one point. Peter did amazing things, but the Bible made sure that we knew he turned his back on Jesus at one point. The Bible made sure that we are aware of the history. I'm not quite sure if the church does a good job of doing that. You might be sitting there thinking that's in the past, it's not a big deal. Well, as a black Christian man in a white majority church, where 90% of the songs we sing are written by middle-class white men, 90% of the quotes used by vicars in sermons are by middle-class white men, it's very important to me. The church conveniently fails to mention that John Newton was a slave ship owner. Even my iPhone's in denial. It's changed the slave ship owner to spaceship owner. So, uh, <laughs> John Newton was a slave ship owner, not a spaceship owner. Uh, when John Newton became a Christian, he gave up using profanity, he gave up drinking, he gave up gambling, but refused to give up the slave trade. Even after having a stroke in old age and not being able to work, he still invested in slaving operations. Eventually, 39 years after becoming a Christian, after all the money had been made, after his glory years were over, he saw the light and realized slavery was wrong and went on to release a book about it which cemented him as a hero of the times. Now, is my aim to vilify John Newton? No. Am I saying that God can't use the hymn Amazing Grace to bless people and give hope to the hopeless? No. I'm saying that the church needs to know their history so it can know where it wants to go next. There's quite a few stories like John Newton's in the church's history and if the Bible doesn't sweep things under the carpet, neither should the church. Thank you. Good evening. We need to talk about race in the UK church. I'm going to speak specifically about the part of the UK church that I know best, which is the Church of England. I can't speak for it all, but I can speak for my experiences in the Church of England. I'm a lifelong Anglican, baptized in St. Michael Barbados, confirmed in Streatham, London, and since my confirmation in 1995, I've been engaged and involved in a number of lay and ordained ministries in the church. However, I recognize that it's the same church from which people dear to me, my mother, were excluded 
the so-called Windrush generation when they arrived here in the 1950s and 60s. It's the same church which gave me hope when things were dark for me in my teens. The same church I deliberately left in my anti-establishment, anti-imperialist, anti-colonialist years in my 20s. And the same church to which I returned to put my faith into action in my 30s, and I've stayed there ever since. Quite amazingly, it was the same church which helped me to discern my calling to ministry. And yet the same church which saw me face serious and searing racialized challenges from fellow students while in training for ordination. The same church which could say that there were no black theologians that were available to come and train us. And yet it's the same church that I now find myself in a leadership role at local and national level. We know that there is no one black experience. And while I've been able to become part of the senior leadership team in the Diocese of Southwark, my experience is not replicated in sufficient numbers across the Church of England. Despite the recent flurry of senior appointments over the past few years, I know too many people, formerly and currently, who feel marginalized by the continuing homogeneity of the Church of England, which was famously termed pale, male, and stale. <laughs> Many feel that they have been excluded or extruded. Some complain of having been brought in and then hung out to dry. Some feel ignored or left behind or plain left out. And that's not even to record the number of racialized microaggressions that come with just being black in this society and in the place where you least expect it, the church. All these years after my own experiences, and while I can't give specific examples because some of them are still ongoing, not for me, but for others, I can tell you it is so hard to listen to stories of people who are currently experiencing bias and racism in their encounters in the church. Honestly, it can be hard to work through with them the next steps that they can take because each step will mean navigating through some person who may not be integrally involved but who feel that by calling out racism all are being labeled and therefore nothing should be done. It is this same church that I can say without the support from the leaders at the top, change will not happen. It has taken me time to feel that I can navigate some of the systems and structures and make an input into the strategic planning that is necessary to bring about real change. In 2007, as convener of one of the three area committee for minority ethnic Anglican concern groups in Southwark, I managed to get the diocese to establish the now annual Diocesan Black History Month 
Thanksgiving service and day of events. Significantly, there is also an action plan for black and minority ethnic engagement and leadership overseen at diocesan level. And yet, we have been talking about race in the Church of England for over 40 years. There is a committee for minority ethnic Anglican concerns at national level, staffed and led by amazing lay and ordained people who have had to work tirelessly against the grain to make the national church really take the issue of black and minority ethnic involvement and leadership on board. The first report was written in 1991 called Seeds of Hope. The last report to General Synod in 2011 was entitled Unfinished Business. The first Church of England black bishop was appointed in 1985. The next one was appointed in 2017, 37 years later. The Stephen Lawrence Inquiry published in 1999 and co-chaired by the now Archbishop of York shook the institutions of this country to the core, including the Church of England. Diocese of Southwark, where I am, had its own inquiry and found itself to need to do work on internal institutional racism. Since then, it's commissioned a series of reports and undertaken a number of initiatives. But despite these initiatives and some role models at the front, many people still feel battered and bruised by a system that has sometimes displayed good intentions, but lacked intentionality. Over the past three to four years, it has felt like there is a greater level of seriousness and commitment in some places to make change happen. In this book that we're here to talk about, Ben rightly challenges um, churches throughout this land to talk and do more than talk about race. He challenges them to put race on the agenda and keep it there. He challenges church leaders to look at diversity and power and the othering of people of color in their congregations and for the church to check its spiritual and substantive power and privileges and its capacity for paying lip service to build in an inclusive and diverse church. He challenges everyone to begin and deepen meaningful relationships with those who look different to themselves. The Jesus we follow came to lead us in his mission of love and inclusion, enabling people and supporting them to really be the best that he had called them to be in their difference and their diversity. If we truly act on this book's call, that means that the church nationally and the church I serve in has to constantly reimagine and renegotiate its mission and ministry so that all people feel that there is an intentionality to really finish the business that has been long started. Thank you.
I was yet to be a twinkle in anyone's eye when the white man came to the village of my ancestors selling salvation. Spurred by the Great Commission of Matthew's Gospel, these Europeans made it their mission to go into all the world and preach the good news to people who looked like me. Well, at first, my people, the Igbo tribe from southeastern Nigeria, stuck to the traditional religions they had always known, many eventually converted to Christianity. And before I say anything, I want to say that I'm so thankful that they did. Because for all the faults of Western Christianity, I believe that in its essence, Christianity is about a truth that transcends cultures, that crosses barriers, that tells the most beautiful story of hope. But my problem, and what I have experienced in my three and a half decades of majority white church at local and national level in the UK, is that somewhere along the way, this truth has been contorted into all sorts of messages that keep some people with all the power and others without. Recent years have made me question whether the story of white supremacy being sold is really what I signed up to. Because sometimes it has appeared so contrary to the truth that I have at times doubted whether I can still be a part of it. When Christianity becomes too closely aligned with power and privilege and protection, rather than justice and freedom for the marginalized and oppressed. In thinking about my experience as a black person within white majority church spaces, my thoughts have been punctuated by doubt. A doubt about whether I really have anything to say on the issue. I've never faced what some might describe as explicit, overt racism. Never been called the N-word or heard it preached anywhere that black people are inferior. But I have been made to feel like I don't belong. I moved from Nigeria with my parents and younger sisters to the UK when I was four years old. When you're a black family of five turning up at all-white churches in places like Hertfordshire or Kent or Hampshire, people notice. I recall my parents being asked once by a woman on the welcome team why they had chosen that particular church to attend instead of the black church down the road. I'm sure she thought her question was harmless, but I have never forgotten it. It suggested that not only did she see our race first, rather than see us as members of God's big family, her family, but that the norm she had become accustomed to was that white people were here and black people were over there. We've often heard it said that the church remains one of the most racially segregated spaces in society. I was asked recently in an interview for an American evangelical magazine about black majority churches in the UK. I made a remark about my belief that ultimately we should all be working towards churches that are multiracial. The interviewer disagreed, saying it would surely be unfair for people of other cultures to have to lose their identity and conform. His words betrayed his belief that clearly the majority race is normative and that all other races, their cultures and traditions and distinct ways of being would naturally be subsumed by whiteness. This is white supremacy in action. White supremacy comes not only in the Klansman's white cape, but the subtle words that seem to betray the idea that white is right. White supremacy can come not in literal chains and shackles, but the narrow definition of what and who is beautiful. 
White supremacy can come in the form of monochrome leadership, theology, and practice. A cookie cutter of chino-wearing whiteness. My experience as a black person in white majority spaces is that white is right and everything else is color. But I believe the beauty of the Christian story is in Christ drawing together all people from all places, breaking down the dividing wall of hostility. At times when I've thought about race issues within the church, I've been met with a retort that says that all are equal under God and therefore we should not play into identity politics. In other words, I've been warned not to play the race card. The majority white church asks us not to play that card while simultaneously doing a very good job at highlighting our difference in ways that make us uncomfortable. I think back to the International Sundays where we were encouraged to bring our native food, dress in our traditional outfits and celebrate our culture. These days would provide a certain level of anxiety for me as a young person because I was already confused enough about my own identity. Was I British? or Nigerian? Should my parents bring jollof rice to share or coronation chicken, quiche, and cucumber sandwiches? I realize, though, that what I'm saying is contradictory and can be confusing for well-meaning white people. I've said my culture should be celebrated, but you shouldn't point out that I'm different. I want you to recognize where I'm from, but I've spent far too many hours tying myself in knots trying to appear wholly British without any hint of the Nigerian heritage that I used to be ashamed of. Like much of the rest of my life, I attempted to conform to whiteness in church without question. I was a strange child. I used to sit at home singing through the songs and hymns of fellowship, listening to Graham Kendrick CDs on repeat, and pretending I was Darlene Chech by singing along to Hillsong backing tracks. I tell you this because I want to give you an insight into the constant battle that goes on inside my mind. Questions, confusion, and internal angst about home and belonging and identity. As theologian Ekemeni Uwan wrote recently, this is the psyche of the colonized mind, always at war with itself. In recent years, I've been more at ease with celebrating my blackness not trying to hide it in order to conform to the majority. In recognizing that I feel a powerful connection with my own culture and identity. My discomfort in white majority spaces comes when the choice is taken away from me. When you decide whether my culture should be dialed up or dialed down. My disappointment lies when I reflect on my 35 years in white majority churches and realize that these spaces have been those in which, in general, the Imago Day in me and people who look like me has been overlooked. I wonder whether I've ever heard a sermon quoting a black theologian, Martin Luther King excluded, or whether songs and choruses that celebrate different rhythms and styles from different cultures are ever considered as legitimate ways to worship God. For me, in recent years, there has come a beauty in recognizing the power of the Negro spiritual or the numinous feeling that comes with singing a chorus in my ancestral tongue. Hillsong and Graham Kendrick have given way to the depth of feeling when I hear songs that have grown in global popularity, such as Imela, a beautiful song in my language of Igbo, which talks of gratitude to God, the great and mighty creator of the world. Imela, Imela, 
We need to talk about race because perhaps it's in the celebration of diversity and difference, in seeing and hearing things in new ways, that we can be awakened again to the beauty of the Creator God. Thinker Theodore Zeldin has written and spoken about the importance of meaningful conversations. Conversations which change how we see the world and conversations which change the world. He writes, the kind of conversation I'm interested in is one in which you start with a willingness to emerge a slightly different person. Between you, you are challenging the church and you're challenging us to enter such a conversation. You've done so this evening already by speaking with great erudition, great honesty and fierce and strong vulnerability. So our deep thanks for that. You've listened to one another, and now we're itching to know what you might want to pick up from what one of the other speakers has said. Who's willing to pitch in? Ladies first. <laughs> I think um, Isaac, the story of, of John Newton, it's, it's, it is taught but it's not taught well enough. And sometimes what we do is we teach it, perhaps in Black History Month. Mm. <laughs> and then it's not taught in a way that encourages everyone to engage with this as part of our story and our history and the church and what it really means for us to be church. So I just thought for me, there's Don Newton, but there's so many other powerful stories that we need to hear. Mm. And I think it was wonderful to hear you raise that one for us. Thank you. I think for me, it's been really interesting hearing Rosemary's story because we realized that these we realize the people that have come before us and the fact that these battles have been fought for a long time. Um, and the fact that this is even happening in St. Paul's Cathedral shows potentially how far we've come, um, but potentially how far we still have to go. And I wonder when, whether there will ever come a time where we stop talking about it, um, whether this is just something that we will always be battling with in different ways. 
Can I ask, just picking up on that, do you think the conversation has changed at all in those years you've been describing? Has it been evolving or are we actually saying the same things? For me, even with you having the bravery to, to sing that song and talking about how once upon a time you were quite anxious about your identity, that's something that I can relate to and I feel like I've got the confidence now to be proud of who I am because my friends and society and culture are having a really progressive race conversation. But in my experience, the church has been lost to that party. Um, so I'm wondering whether we can actually switch things around a little bit so the church can be leaders in that conversation. Because that really struck me from one of the opening things you said, Ben, which was, you know, recently in, in sport, this has been all over, the, you know, and, and, and yet where's the church <coughs> in that? Why are we not leading in this? I think it's really helpful just having history and background from, from Rosemary. Um, I think it's fascinating to have an intergenerational conversation on race and racism in the UK. This doesn't happen as much as it should do. Um, the idea of just listening and being able to learn. So from my perspective, the conversation about race and racism in a, in a, in a church context is not something which I feel has happened quick enough. Mm. But then it's encouraging to hear that for 30, 40 years it's been going on and people like Rosemary and people like Dr. Elizabeth Henry who's here and various other people have been fighting a good fight. I think the other problem is, is that it's great to see that in a Church of England context, but there's many other denominations where that's not happening. So it's kind of, where is the conversation cross-denominational? Mm. And um, so I just think it's really helpful. I think the other thing I'll just say is that what I've learned and what we should all know is that black people are not a monolith. It's really important to understand that we've all just described different experiences mm. and that's okay. Mm. <laughs> it's all right that we're all different and we've had different experiences, but unfortunately the media doesn't allow us to tell multiple black stories. Mm. And that's a problem. Yeah, yeah, people. Karen and Trisha, I wanted to say yes, the conversation has changed because from the Windrush generation who were excluded and extruded and Sinead's family who felt that sense of othering in, in, in uh, churches, we've moved to a stage where it's not as bad as that, but we have to recognize that some people are still facing those challenges and we have to be robust about meeting those challenges and engaging with them. As you rightfully say, the fact that we're here having this conversation clearly means we have moved on. The fact that we will soon be having um, Reverend Rose being consecrated as the Bishop of Dover means we have moved on. But there is yet a long way to go. Will we be having these conversations 20, 30 years down the road? I think so. But hopefully they'll be attenuated and hopefully, hopefully they'll be celebratory. We've got a few more moments for you to pick up on anything one of your 
colleagues on the panel picked up on or spoke about. Is there something that struck you, Ben, Isaac? Your name's first on the flyer. <laughs> <laughs> so Alphabetical, like, Ben. Is that that age before beauty? <laughs> <clears throat> I think it's, um, I think, Chinny, you mentioned around what typically happens in the church context of well-meaning white Christians talking about color blindness. We're all the same. We're all under the banner of Jesus. I don't see color, um, which for the most part, when I've heard that, I think is coming from a good place, but it's a real pain <laughs> because I'm always a bit like, God clearly does see color because <laughs> I'm black and you're white. So that's a problem, and I think it's something it comes back to having those conversations. I talk about in the book about color blindness being one end of the spectrum and color consciousness being the other end, and it's how do we celebrate our differences, which we should do, under the banner of Jesus Christ. Mm. That's the trick, that's the conversation, that's the tension, but we shouldn't ignore either. And I think for me it was just something which was what you said, I swear to pick that up. Do you want to add anything, Chine, to that? Yeah, I, I was thinking about the, the gendered aspect as well, to, um, in addition to the race issues. Um, and hearing Isaac and Ben's experiences, they have particular experiences that I don't have. So that fear of, you know, walking down the road, being, you know, mistaken identity, not wearing certain clothes so that you... Um, it is assumed that you fall into a stereotype of what a black man is. Mm. Um, I think there are particularly particular issues that are relevant to men. There are also different issues that relate to black women. So um, the trope of the angry black woman. So this idea that you kind of um, potentially for black women they have to contain rage <laughs> um, for fear of coming across aggress as aggressive mm. or angry. So, yeah, the gendered aspect, I think, has come out as well in, in hearing everyone speak. Thank you. Um, I think Ben spoke about the, the importance of belonging and people feeling that they can see themselves in, in God's inclusive love and in the church in which they attend and serve. Now, the church that I, I am um, the vicar of in Brixton is actually 95% black and minority ethnic membership. And the team that leads there are um, Asian, black, and white. So we kind of, you know, try to work with the issues and try to deal with culture, cultural issues, and we try to be inclusive in our liturgy. But that doesn't mean that I don't recognize that outside of that bubble, there are people experiencing exactly the same challenges as the ones that you have described in the same Church of England in which I serve. Yeah. Thank you. We're going now to open up to some of the questions that you've been sending in. Thank you very, very much. You've got a few more minutes, so if you're burning, uh, have a burning question, please make sure you get it over to our team. Um, I'm going to start, actually, with one of the questions that came in particularly early on. And actually, Ben, it does pick up that comment, that term, colour blindness, that, that you just introduced to us. 
and and it will be phrased in a way that that those of us who are scriptural will un get hold of but saying you know what would we say to those who disagree that we need to talk about race because there is now no jew no gentile we are one body it's a great question <laughs> i think those verses which are great and rich verses um, will mean different things to different people and I think it is talking about that under the banner of Christ in the body we are all believers of Jesus but I don't think it talks about ignoring difference and you only have to look at the reality of what's going on in our streets in our neighborhoods what's going on politically to know that we can't ignore our differences. People will look at our differences as being a problem. So what are we then saying? We just don't talk about that. We don't engage with that issue. Um, we don't talk about it in a church context. We hide this angst, this pain, this suffering, and then it bubbles up and explodes somewhere else. I don't think the Bible's teaching that. Um, and I think it requires us to work hard. I, I think if somebody hasn't experienced that, and, you know, to be fair, when I wrote the book, I'm aware that it's really directed to church congregations in very hyper-diverse communities. So if you perhaps live in, in a place where it's 99% white, is everything in the, in the book going to resonate? Probably not. But it doesn't mean that that's not happening in other parts of the country. And as a praying body of believers, we shouldn't be praying for things. I'm not in... Africa, but it doesn't mean I don't pray for the situations in different countries. So um, I don't think it's an excuse. I think the other thing I would say is that don't just take my word for it. <laughs> Go and talk to other people of color and see what they're thinking. I've said it before, we're not a monolith. I'm not suggesting everything in my book is uh, like a blanket message for everyone, but I'm pretty sure there'll be some things in there that we can relate to. Anything that someone else would want to add by way of that color blindness, we're, we're one. So why, why do we need to talk about this? I think the problem with phrases like color blindness or kind to, trying to push the idea that we're all kind of the same or things that, that we're not, and that God created us as wonderfully diverse. And I think we need to do the inverse of color blindness and just celebrate everyone's differences. Um, there's a passage in Acts that I love which talks about, you know, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. So they were all together with all their differences in one place. I think the problem comes when um, the reality is that the majority race, um, when we talk about there is neither Jew nor Greek, no, slave nor free, it means other people need to kind of lay down their identities and conform to the majority. And that is a problem. The reality is that we don't all see each other as the same, do we? Otherwise, we wouldn't be having these conversations. We wouldn't be having all these issues. So um, it's about recognizing. I think we would really all benefit from valuing the diversity through which God has created us. I think, for me, one of the joys of being here is that week by week, 
whoever's worshipping together is different, actually, um, and actually different from around the world. And actually, one of the most moving things for me is, is the privilege of a priest being able to offer um, wafers and saying, as you put it into someone's hand, the body of Christ. And if I have the opportunity to look into the face of the person as they're doing that, and knowing that people are coming from around the world, not only are we offering and sharing the body of Christ, but for me it's something about seeing the body of Christ, so something about recognition of people, which is the opposite of blindness, actually. I was just going to just finally say that it says that we all reflect, we, we are all children of God and we all reflect the beauty of God, each and every one of us in our diversity. If we say that we need to forget that, then that means that, I think it's Chine's phrase, that the beauty of the creator and the beauty of the creation then is homogenized. And that's not the creation that God made. I'm going to pick up now on a, another group of questions. A number of people are asking this, and I don't know if it was prompted by what you were saying, uh, Rosemary, about you know the Church of England being your experience. Um, there's a question here about, do we think that new churches, in inverted commas, um, and an example is given, other churches are available, um, <laughs> but New Frontiers, for example, stand a better chance of getting things right or better because they don't have the legacy that some of our traditional churches struggle with. When I'm... Let them when I'm outside of the church having conversations of this kind in the barbershop, the guys that don't have history of the church or experience growing up in church don't really care about denominations. They just see it as one thing and we're all part of the same body. So I think the Church of England's problem is also New Frontier's problem and we need to own the church as a whole and be part of the solution. I, I totally agree. That's a great... <clears throat> That's a great point. Yeah, there's a, there's a street-level conversation about Christianity and church, which, as Isaac's just mentioned, the barbershops. Um, I think there's great things about different denominations. I think what I love about the Church of England is um, there are some centralized parts of the Church of England, which I'm still getting my head around, which doesn't, does mean that you can have a conversation like race and it can impact different parishes. And I think that's brilliant. Um, and so that's a tick. I think when you, take, uh, <laughs> when you take denominations like New Frontiers, maybe the fact that it's a 40-year movement and there is a little bit more freedom in how we do things without the centralized models, less legislation and, and no synods and all that type of stuff. In theory, it should mean that some things can move a little bit more organically, but that can also be problematic as well. I think Isaac's point is just nailed it. Ultimately, how do you get the message of inclusivity and get and help people to feel more integrated who do not know Jesus. The conversations I have in the barbershops are, oh, it's a white Jesus. Mm. Well, that's Church of England and New Frontiers. <laughs> and Hillsong. 
so I'm going to leave you guys out. <laughs> you know, what about the transatlantic slave trade? Right? Don't look at it like, well, New Frontiers wasn't around in the transatlantic. Those guys, it's a church. No, they're just like, I've been called many things, which I can't say because I'm in here, but you know, you're a sellout because you are representing the church. So I think that's a better conversation to be having instead of breaking it down into denominations. What I will say very quickly on the denominations is that recently I've been in spaces where some of the denominations that we have spoken about, those leaders have all been in one room. And what I can say, there is a desire for a better understanding of race relations in a UK church context, which is massively encouraging for me because I just thought different denominational leads didn't talk to one another and Church of England don't want to talk to the Baptists and the Baptists don't want to talk to the Catholics. That's been blown away. Actually, there is a desire and I think there's a spiritual move of God where people are, are asking the question in a way I've not experienced before. Can we get better at race relations in a church context? Can we see that come through more deliberately, more intentionally through leadership, through in, in terms of inclusion and integration? So that's encouraging. I was just going to add that in all these uh, churches, denominations, they become institutions. And in all institutions, the issues are of power and of privilege. And who holds the power? And who holds the privilege? And how they other? And it may be that in some cases, it may be according to ethnicity or culture. And in other places, it will be according to gender. And so we need to recognize that and get to the bottom of that, as opposed to just picking between, well, this one historically and that one is newer and whatever. We need to unpin it, look at the structures, look at the processes, and see how power works in those various <coughs> denominations and institutions. So, so let's go a little deeper into that question of, of power. Um, Chine, you mentioned gender a little earlier, um, and some questions have come in, um, picking up, at, taking a slightly different angle, but asking uh, about class, really, and privilege, um, and saying um, here, is there a risk of promoting university educated and assimilated uh, black Africans, black people, but forgetting poorer groups? It's, quite, it's a hugely challenging question. Um, I, I write about that in the book as well. I, t I talk about how um, probably in, in the movement of churches I'm connected to, there has been times where it's been said to me that if you are maybe black African, university educated, black person married to a white woman, you're more likely to be given leadership opportunities. So that is a, that is a real concern. Um, and I know people who have left churches because there's, in my opinion, and others, there's clear leadership on them, but they are maybe more working class. And I think it comes back to what particularly white leaders see and recognize as good leadership. So we, this is not just about the church in every aspect of, 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 of life white leadership is pushed as being brilliant and we don't see 
in the media enough black leaders. Like growing up for me, watching television, I remember, and this is going to show my age a little bit, I remember Gus from EastEnders. Mm. You remember Gus? Yeah, I do remember mm. Gus. Yeah, man. Good guy, but he was a road sweeper. And I'm not against road sweepers, just to be really clear. But I needed more than that in the, in the, in the media context. And, you know, some people have said to me in the, in the past, but then you had Trevor McDonald. Big respect to Trevor McDonald. But that was not who I was looking to as a teenager, as being, I want to be like Trev. That wasn't, that wasn't what. And therefore, I think because we have this media obsession with white leadership in different contexts, or at least I did growing up, then what do we expect when we come into a church context where here I come, I'm like, I feel like I can lead but I'm not really given those opportunities. One of the reasons I was given those opportunities is because I had a black leader in my church context who'd been through some of the battles I've been through and actually took me under his wing. And that's the reason, one of the reasons why I feel that I'm, but if we don't see those, we don't nurture that, I think we've got- think Those we've got people who hold the space open for others. Absolutely. Let's come back to that question of class as well. Yeah. Did you yeah. either- I was going to say that that has always been the challenge of the Church of England in terms of its leadership, where um, the, those who are in power often promote people who look just like them, who look like them, who've been to the same schools as them, or have similar traditions as them, and so that has been replicated. And so, yes, there has been class differentiation in terms of the leadership of the church. There are now um, attempts to try to change that and to actively work to encourage uh, people of all levels um, to be able to feel that they have a place, that they belong and that they can be a part of the leadership of the church as well. Um, but it is hard and it's hard for, for everyone to make sure that they constantly are intentional about diversifying who are our leaders and seeing people, whether they be formerly a taxi driver or a road sweeper, if they have the call within them and it can be discerned through those who are, they, they are with in church, then everyone has the capacity to be able to be part of the leadership. Because leadership in the church is not, and I want to say this loudly, about wearing a piece of plastic around your neck. Leadership in the church, well, the Church of England, 98% of those people who are the leaders of the Church of England are not ordained. And they need to be brought in to be part, to recognize themselves as leaders of the church also. And I think that's really got to be the message that then people of all classes <coughs> be included in that leadership. Thank you. I, w I would add as well that um, this has been part of my angst <laughs> um, for a long time is about whether um, I am an acceptable face of blackness um, because I went to Cambridge and I'm from the home counties and I'm not really going to shake, uh, shake anything up that much. So therefore you do find people, people who are elevated, black people who are elevated to positions of, le positions of leadership in the church are potentially the people that aren't going to um, sh shake things up too much. 
And I think that's partly because of what I talked about earlier, which was about this um, longing to conform to whiteness, because I thought that was what was acceptable. Um, however, in talking about these issues, sometimes I think we fall into the trap of not recognizing that there is a black middle class. So when we talk about black people, we immediately start talking about um, class and poverty and black people being the poor ones, which is, which is true. Um, but I want us to recognize that there are black middle class people as well as there are white working class people. And the church needs to work really hard at including everyone mm -hmm. and recognizing that in including everyone, it will be a bit messy <laughs> and a bit uncomfortable, mm -hmm. but we need to be okay with that. But can I just say, I think uh, when people often say to me, what about class? It's almost like, what, there's no black working class people. So we've got to understand that, yes, we have class issues, but being black on top of being working class is also very, can be very problematic in terms of um, leadership positions. So if we take um, social housing in this country, there's, there's more black people in social housing. You look at the race disparity index for 2017, 2018, there's more black people in social housing, which suggests that, yes, we do need to talk about class, but when you throw race into the mix as well, it becomes even more problematic. And I think, therefore, I was very clear when I wrote this book, yes, there are plenty of other things we should be talking about, but the danger is, is sometimes if you go so wide, you miss what's right in front of you. So I'm, I'm completely unapologetic in keeping the focus on race. And some people might not like that, but I think it's important. And I'm looking forward mm. to other conversations around gender, around class, sexuality, whatever it is. But I, I think the danger is if we go too wide, we miss the specific issues we have as black people in the UK. Mm. I'm just, I'm just going to add to that. I personally, no matter the university I went to, I came from working class stock myself with two parents who didn't finish their education and I came through as the first person of my generation to go to university. So I know how challenging it is to get through. And I know also that we must always, always talk about intersectionality because we don't come just as black or just as women or just as working class. We come with all of our identity and we want the church to recognize us in all of our identity and to have a place for us there in all of our identity. Ben, you almost began by saying when we sat down that actually the stories are, are different, that we're not monolithic, um, and that's really <coughs> crucial, actually. Um, let's have a look at some questions that... There are quite a few questions that are specific about being church um, and the experience of being church and how we help or hinder one another. So. Uh, brace yourself. And then there's one about St. Paul's, which is a really serious question in a while, which I'll ask you to reflect on. Um, so there's a number of, of um, questions around uh, why on earth, I add the on earth, why would black people stay in a white majority church? And I'll expand 
someone says, I'm white and middle class, my wife is black. I've seen at first hand the exhaustion of her experience in a white majority church. Why should black worshippers stay in white majority churches? And how do they survive without burnout? When is it time to leave the environment so as to avoid the comfort of tokenism? The reality is that um, a lot of black people and a lot of black women are leaving the churches, are leaving British white majority churches. They're leaving out the back door. Mm -hmm. I would say to that no one should stay in a church that makes them feel anxious, that makes them feel otherized, that makes them feel less than, that makes them feel tired. I don't think anyone should stay in a church like that. Um, but I would say that when you do leave, have a word with the church leader and say, these are the reasons why I'm leaving. Just so you know, when the next black woman or black person comes through the door, this is how you can change. I would say, don't, don't just leave, make a change. So I started in the Church of England in this country in a church which after two years I left because I said to the vicar in a letter, I don't think you've even learnt my name and I've been coming here for two years. I left and went to another Church of England church where um, I was welcomed in where the vicar remind, rem remembered me at the end of the service and when I went back the next week, said, thank, I'm so glad you're back, and built a relationship with me. It was a white vicar. And in that church is where I was confirmed two years later, and it's from that church that I was called into ministry. <clears throat> the reason I stay is because, as I say to my daughter, there are no places or spaces where I should not be. It may be a challenge, it may be a battle, but I'm going to make this place a space that others can come and be welcomed into. So for me, I said at the beginning, I was born <coughs> Anglican, and I will probably be that way until I'm taken out of the church. And I feel I have a right to be there. It is the church that better, best serves my understanding of serving the mission of God, and therefore I feel I have a right to be in it, I have the right to be at the table, I have a right to lead into that church, and I have a right to open the doors and to welcome others who look like me, or many other colors like me, to be also part of the church. That's it. Uh, for me, just on a practical level, the church that I attend has some of my, my closest friends. It, it's good location in relation to where I live, and the church isn't all bad. There's some, some fantastic things about, about the church, and I'm sitting here hearing stories from a number of years ago and people that have made decisions that have helped me in my life. I haven't had to fight the same battles that Rosemary has, for example, or Bear Norchin, and I feel like the easy thing for me to do would be to leave, but that wouldn't help the guy that's there in 10, 20 years that's going to face some of the issues that I face. So I feel like it's more important for me to stay and be part of the change that I want to see. Mm. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat>
So, I think it's how seriously we take the Bible. So Revelation 7, 9 talks about every tongue, every tribe coming together, worshipping. So do we look at that as an ideal we only see in heaven, or is that something we can actually try and work towards right now? My belief is that it's something we should be working towards. So this is the reason why I won't just say let's go to a black church. I think for me, it's also a practical thing. So I have, I was going to say mixed race children, but we've had a conversation <laughs> about whether we should call mixed I'm race children. I'm dual heritage. Dual heritage. We've had blended. Yeah, there we go. But because I have mixed race children and they go to schools where it, there are other dual heritage children, I want them to go to a church which reflects their environment as well. So I think, you know, there's some personal decisions that we, we all have to make. I think it's also not as straightforward as some people would like to make it. So in my book, I interview uh, Pastor Steve Tibbet from King's Church London. White leader church has 1,500 people, 1,000 black people, 500 white people in the hyper-diverse borough of Lewisham. And what he would say is that black people have left black majority churches for a variety of reasons, not always like one reason, but they've come looking for that diversity. Then he says, he goes on to say, what then happens is that they desperately then want to see black representation in leadership. So then that gets a bit more complicated. So the point I'm making is that I just don't think it's as straightforward as oh, do you know what, why don't I just leave? There's personal reasons, there's family reasons. I grew up in South East London, a hyper-diverse community. Some of my best friends are white, some of my best friends are black. I've never had this opinion that, and some people might, and that's fine, but I've never had this opinion of we should just all stick to, to, together, it should be segregation. That's my personal experience. So. Thank you. Um, there's a bunch of questions which are asking, what can we do? So what, what can we do? Um, and I'm mindful of you quoted Augustine, you know, that hope has two beautiful daughters, anger and courage. What would we say, what would you say to people who are saying we're going back to our churches? What do we say to our leaders? What can we do if we are leaders? And how does that quote from Augustine speak to that about anger, hope, anger, and courage mixed in? So, I think one of the most frustrating things for me over the last few years is when I've seen issues with involving black people, whether that's internationally, where um, people have been killed, police brutality in the US, or hate crime in this country, or various politicians making overtly racist comments and my white Christian brothers and sisters have not said anything. The silence. The silence. That, that kind of breaks my heart. Yeah. So it's something about speaking. It's something about um, making yourself known that when I sit next to you, I'm not second guessing whether or not secretly you may not like me because of the color of my skin. And I think we've got to this point in the UK now where it's not good enough for people to say, I'm not racist. Mm. I need you to say, I'm anti-racist, 
and that is going to come out in my words and actions. There's a difference. Yeah, for me, I find that sometimes the church is one of the only places that I have to censor myself or I feel like leaders feel like they're treading on eggshells a little bit. And I just want to get to a place where I can openly say, I'm not asking for all the answers, but I just want to have vulnerable, undiluted, real and honest conversations so I know that you care and we can build relationship. And I think that if you build relationship, then you're not going to be easily offended because you know that the person you're talking to or the leader you're speaking to has empathy. They want to find the ability to put themselves in your shoes and they don't want to just sweep stuff under the carpet. So I think like a good way forward is realizing that we don't need to have all the answers, but we just need to be able to have honest and vulnerable conversations. I'd say some of it um, is about posture and some of it is about practical changes. So I'd say a posture for leaders of white majority churches should be one of listening and allyship. So number one, listening, just listen. So listen to the experiences of the black people within your churches and don't try to fix it. Don't try to be defensive, just listen. Be an ally, and some of that comes in speaking up when there are injustices um, done against black people. And then there's the practicalities. So thinking about on a Sunday morning or whatever day it is that you meet, what does it look like at the front? Does it look like an inclusive um, space where people of all races are welcomed? Um, are there, could you work a bit harder? on um, making sure that the stories that you tell, the people that you quote in sermons, um, the stories that you tell about um, biblical figures, are they inclusive of all of the people that are in your congregation? Mm. I'd say that it's also about being prepared to give up some power. I had written two words and all of those have just been said. I wrote listen, and then I wrote act with intentionality. So listen, mm. and then act with intentionality. But I think added to that is build relationships. Make them, build <coughs> them, and engage with those who are different to yourself. That will enable people to see the other in themselves, and see themselves in the the other. Yeah. I'm super conscious of time, mm. and um, we've had heaps and heaps and heaps of questions, so thank you. Thank you for sending them in, and our huge apologies that we haven't been able to cover all of them. We hope that we've covered a, a smattering of them to enable this conversation. Um, could I ask each of you, you, you may have um, said what you wanted to, but I need to give you and would want to uh, the opportunity now to say if there was one thing, one thing you wanted us to take away, 
what would it be? For me, it's, I'm often reminded that we're living in a time of division and I think it's amazing we're able to have this conversation at St. Paul's and if it's on your agenda to be part of the conversation and the solution, it would be great to have grace for each other and recognize that we're passionate about this, we care, people are going to have difference of opinion, but if we have the ability to, to empathize and have grace for each other, it'll make the conversation easier. I would say similarly, um, embrace the messiness and the awkwardness and the pain that comes <coughs> with some of these conversations, recognizing that there aren't easy fixes. Some of this is trying to undo centuries of uh, oppression and division. Um, we have come a long way, but there is some way to go. Um, be comfortable in the discomfort. I think that I think that says it for me. I think it is it is to recognise that this is a challenging conversation, and to take it on board that you are not going to be comfortable, but remember that the person that you are different from has long been uncomfortable. I do honestly think it's about intentionality and being deliberate. If you really do care about this issue, um, you do see the things which are going on in your, in your community, in society, speak up, be intentional, be deliberate at every level. If you're a church leader, be intentional and deliberate. If you're a member, lay person, clergy, whatever it is, be intentional in, in being deliberate. I think one thing which definitely needs to underpin everything is prayer. Mm. Um, I think we can sometimes be on the spectrum of action, 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 let's go for it, protest, protest, you know, fight the power. And I'm like, well, how do we power that fight? Yeah. This isn't just a plug for my charity, but this is like, <laughs> it's, it's, it's important. I, it was I, seamless. It was seamless, you know. But I think it's important. We can, we can fight, 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 but if we don't power mm. that fight through prayer, and understanding the spirit of the Lord is what's going to yeah. drive us to repentance, to forgiveness. Mm. When you, pray, you know, when you pray, God reveals things. Mm. When you pray, you can go past many battles because you prayed and God's moved that, that arm. Mm. And I think what I sense is that people are praying the voices of the unheard are beginning to rise. And I think it's a wonderful thing, but we've we got to keep the momentum going. Thank and you. that's what I would Thank say you. on that. One of the things about being in this place is there's a very large clock and a bell, so <laughs> I always know when I'm late. And um, <laughs> you've been very gracious. Um, we do want to thank you, each of you, for coming. Um, it wouldn't have been the same without you. Um, we want to thank each of our contributors hugely. Um, I mentioned Theodore Zeldin a little earlier and um, about those conversations which begin with a willingness to emerge a slightly different person. 
And I think my prayer along with yours is that our churches would have the courage to enter into those conversations mm. and to emerge different and different before God. What Zeldin says is if we're to do that, what matters most is courage. So would you please join me in thanking our speakers?